Hello, and welcome to another episode of the 30 Minute CMO Podcast. My name is Gorsha Huchua, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and partner, Alex McNamara. Good evening, Alex. Good evening, Gorsha. How are you doing? Uh, I am good. It feels for some reason like a new chapter has started in our lives. I'm not sure why, but it probably has to do with the events of I, yesterday. Same. I, it, it's, it's a coincidence. I, I also feel the same thing, like, a, like I've just woken up from a really bad dream. I'm not sure what it is. We are here still. We're still what standing or sitting and, and, and having conversation juice. Yes, conversation juice brought to you by our favorite uh, brand ambassador, George. So this is uh, our weekly ad talk edition of the show. Um, it's a format where you and I discuss news and events in the world of marketing that we found to be the most interesting. Um, we invite you to send us your thoughts and questions via either LinkedIn or Instagram. Uh, and as a reminder, we also have a website, 30minutescmo.com. That's where you can find an archive of all of our episodes and some additional content. Okay, let's get right into the show. Uh, and Alex, what yes. a week or what a couple of weeks it's been for no not america whatsapp or facebook <laughs> shall we say facebook yeah uh what a what a week yeah so uh just to summarize uh they um they updated the app and they displayed a message to all of their users who updated the app basically saying uh, that uh, some privacy things have changed and they're going to be sharing more of your WhatsApp information with the rest of their platforms. Um, and to read more about what that is, you could click into their endless EULA. Um, and uh, the intended result was to just get people to opt in. And what happened was everyone said, hell no, and started fleeing WhatsApp. Um, yeah. What was interesting about this is actually it, this was of all the things Facebook has been doing in terms of privacy kind of things. It's been probably one of the more benign things that they tried to do. They just they really just wanted to have you opt in into sharing some information with um, with um, businesses that are using like the Facebook Messenger platform, which is now going to be synced across all of their platforms into, I guess, WhatsApp as well, as well as into Instagram so that they can have like your basic information, you know, so they know who they're dealing with, who is messaging them for, for that support. But because they didn't give us any choice, uh, you know, you had to either accept or get kicked off the platform because they didn't really explain it because in Facebook's usual fashion, they just forced it down our throats. Um, yeah. And it just, and it, and it was on top of all the other things they, they've done that, that, that haven't been seen as, super privacy centric. No one cared to really read through the details. Facebook didn't really, really provide those details. And people just <laughs> fled. Like the alternative yeah. messaging platforms, Telegram and Signal recorded the highest growth ever, respectively. I think Telegram is now to half a billion users and Signal just crashed because so many people were downloading it. Um, it's just been phenomenal to see. That's, I mean, both of those have been around for what, like at least five years. I mean, right. I remember someone telling me to join Telegram and Signal 20, in 2016, I think. So like, it's not like they were brand new and they came out of nowhere. Like they've been around, but it, I guess it just shows you the power of uh, the, you know, the, the herd of people fleeing, but also it shows you people care about privacy. 
and you know taking everyone knows that they're taking your data and using it to serve you ads but you know your behavior on on facebook and what you like and what you what you click on and where you spend your time you know looking and scanning your messages to not read but to ingest that data and um share it with you know the other platforms so they can know who they're dealing with it's kind of it's it's different it's different even though it is not necessarily that more intrusive well you know i'll give you just here's how i experienced this i updated the the app i opened it it force fed me this message all i saw was hey we're going to be uh sharing more of your information with our other apps accept or be kicked off the service and my immediate thing was like well hell no and also Hell like no. what do, what is it that that I do on WhatsApp? I write messages, private messages to my family, to my friends, right? Like, that's the only thing. I'm not liking anything, I'm not following anything. Literally the only thing I do on that app is write messages. And so my immediate thing was, well, there's going to be reading my messages. I mean, I get it at an aggregate level, but still, I don't want that to be informing their profile of of me as someone to advertise to. Um so my immediate yeah. thing was to look for alternatives, you know, then Elon piles on on top through Twitter and he says, mm-hmm. use signal, you know, so signals, downloads go vertical. Um, yeah. And uh, it's it's been it's been uh, actually materially uh, affecting Facebook, I think, to the point where they, you know, they recognize they screwed this up. Uh, and for the last week, they've been trying to walk this back, um, including saying they're going to delay this new rollout. Um, for six months and take a more measured approach and give people more options about whether to sign up or not. I mean, to me, this just feels like such a cavalier attitude. That's probably the prevailing attitude within the company. And until they get hit over the head with a hammer, uh, they are not really thinking through what those, you know, reactions are. Yeah. I mean, they're not, they're not going to, they can find another way to make billions of more dollars in advertising revenue because everyone is on, spending money on Facebook and Google, the 80% of budgets go in digital budgets go into Facebook and Google because of their targeting, then you know they're not going to ask for permission. They're going to ask for forgiveness and they're not going to ask for forgiveness through being sued and countersuing in the courts because why you know if you if you give they did it in a cack-handed way when they just said you you accept this or don't, which goes exactly the opposite way of what um, Apple is doing. And Apple taking the, you know, basically becoming the catalyst to show you and have give you more um, information on what apps are taking what kinds of data. So, you know, it goes in the exact opposite way, which Apple is spending millions and probably billions of dollars in advertising to say, we're really, we're going to help you keep your privacy. And then Facebook goes, we're going to help you sell more of your data for free. Yeah. We touched on this in our last episode I, uh, that, this this friction between what Apple is doing and, uh, and what Facebook is having to do as a result. Um, and I was actually on a, on a call with Facebook, um, you know, as an advertiser, as a brand, uh, uh, trying to understand what the ramifications are because the ramifications of this change on Apple's side are real. Facebook has been severely limited by what they can do in terms of collecting data. And, um, and so it impacts the advertisers. And it's interesting, their public stance and their and their messaging directly to brands is exactly the same. You remember if, if, you know, a few weeks ago when 
Apple came out with yeah. this new framework, Facebook took ads out in the New York Times, I think in the Wall Street Journal and basically said, you know, this is going to hurt small businesses. And it was just so cringy, cringeworthy because it's like, no, Facebook, yeah. it's not, it's, I mean, it's, it's hurting you. Like you're not taking these ads out yeah. on behalf of, you know, the mom and pop shop on the corner somewhere. You're taking this ad because it's, it restricts your ability to, to collect data. Um, and then you get on these uh, direct conversations with their reps and they're reading off of the same script, literally reading off of a script, uh, saying the same yeah. thing, you know, before they dive into the implications and kind of walk you through the things that you as an advertiser have to do, they spend at least two or three minutes reading off of a script saying Facebook does not uh, agree with this move by Apple, that's, it hurts the businesses, blah, blah, blah. Um, and you just sit there and listen to this and, and think to yourself, you know, who do they think we are? You know, like who do they, yeah. who do they take us for? Um, so I think it's been a bad, uh, a bad couple of weeks for Facebook. I think it's been an overall a bad year or so for Facebook in terms of PR, maybe not so much revenue, but this stuff is going to start catching up to them at, at some point if they don't start taking a more thoughtful approach to how both businesses and users see them, frankly, because I think yeah. the, the desire I mean, for alternatives it, it, is there. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, then it, it kind of flies in the face of how they, how you know, the other lawsuit that's going on with them, which is the, the way that they approach competition within the space. You know, either um, was it like buy, buy, crush, destroy, whatever, you know, something like that. Um, and it's it's their attitude that we're the we're the best, we're the biggest. You need to do what we say, or we'll destroy you. And um, you, know, you can kind of see that coming across all different their different um, all of their different um, communications. Speaking of which, moving on to our next topic, I heard former Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg on the radio this afternoon talking about how uh, how they've um, their policy around silent no, not silencing uh, monitoring and um, uh, sil silencing. Um, some of the world leaders and he had a very uh, diplomatic answer which was we didn't just do it with one of them we actually do it with a lot of them but I'm not gonna tell you who but we have done it so you know it's not just one person um, which kind of gets us into our next topic which is social media versus the first amendment right and as a non-american I had to google exactly what the first amendment was I recommend a lot of Americans that I've seen on tv also do the same thing because what it means is the government cannot silence you um in word for word congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the free freedom of speech or of the press or of the right for a people um or the right of the people peacefully to assemble and petition the government um for a redress of grievances which basically says the government can't arrest you uh, for having an opinion and voicing that opinion against the government, which is unlike uh, our friends in China, who in Hong Kong went and arrested 50 people, 52 people the other week um, against their new state terrorism act. What it doesn't guarantee you is a platform to have those opinions. So you're allowed to have the opinion, but it doesn't guarantee any company from hosting voicing or publishing your opinion uh which is what we saw with um i think it was hawley had a book deal and the private company said we're not we're not going to publish this book anymore 
and he's now taking them to court for the First Amendment. And you hear this a lot in um, in rhetoric when someone disagrees with you, and it's my First Amendment right guarantees me this, and you're like you're halfway there. You're not arrested, but I don't have to listen to your nonsense. Um, so I think it's really important to make that distinction first, but then also for social media, as we you know as we saw. Twitter took down Trump's um, or barred Trump and the real Donald Trump account from Twitter. Facebook suspended and then indefinitely suspended. And then a whole host, my favorite, my favorite one, well, close runner up, Pinterest banned him. I don't know why, but apparently they thought there Pinterest. Goes, there goes pins. his boards. Yeah. There goes, I, mean, I hope he saved his boards. I hope Melania saved her boards as well. Um, but TikTok yes. banned Trump. Yes, that's very so, meta. That's very meta. Very meta. I feel like a year ago we were discussing this uh, and having the same conversations. And now it's TikTok bans Trump, not Trump bans TikTok. He should have tried harder really to ban that so that he wouldn't get banned. So yeah, I mean it's um it's it's it, it's really it's a really interesting um issue that people seem to have with this that you shouldn't be allowed to be banned from voicing your opinion on a private company's platform. Yeah, it gets into a very murky um, field very quickly, right? Because if you um, if 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 you become a public utility for conversation for discourse, um, I yeah. think there is um, there is disagreements uh, in the kind of among the the legal class about. Um, whether these First Amendment rights extend um, extend there or not, you know, question. For example, if uh, you were to pick up a phone and to call your, um, you know, right wing racist extremist uh, buddy um, and to you know spew some falsehoods and, and and whatnot, does the phone company have the right to cut you off, right? I think that gets you into this conversation like, well, are they monitoring you? Um, do they have the right to do this? You know, they are, they are public utility. They're essentially the piping for expression of thought. Um, does this apply yeah. to social media? It probably does, It's you know, given the scale that, that of users they've, they've amassed. Um, you know, it was interesting to also see uh, from um, users abroad, uh, how, how they've uh, reacted to this. Um, you know, you mentioned Hong Kong, uh, Russia, um, there was a lot of kind of progressive left wing, um, you know, influencers with followings in the millions, really criticizing, you know, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, yeah. Google for, for, for doing this and basically saying, you know, um, they need to be the vanguards of free speech because I think they are afraid that uh, this sets a precedent for the kind of, as they say, the tech oligarchy to be essentially become the speech policeman for the world yeah. uh, without without yeah. any rights. And like those are some of the only channels maybe available to people in Hong Kong, in Russia, in some of the other places. But I was, as I was reading all of this and kind of digesting all of this, I couldn't help but think about the privileged position the United States finds itself in with all of these platforms outside of TikTok being American platforms, right? Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's sort of like the case with the US dollar. At the end of the day, uh, they pay more attention to what happens in this country than they do in the rest of the world. Their interests will always be elevated um, 
and more, they will be more sensitive to what happens here. Their own workers, their uh, shareholders, uh, the public, the political class yeah. uh, will put such a pressure on them if they don't do something that um, they have to think about the matters of, of US kind of repercussions more than about the rest of the world. And that's where the world kind of, I think, finds itself really at the disadvantage because there aren't really alternative platforms, global alternative platforms uh, that have come into existence at a scale that Facebook and Twitter have that, uh, that allow for, for this kind of discourse. I think it's a, very, it's a very strange place to find yourself in if you are uh, an opposition leader in you know, Iran or Russia or China, yeah. you know, knowing that at any moment, Twitter can yeah. you know, yank you. Uh, similarly, you know, they can exert the pressure on Twitter to do the same to people in the government. So really, I think, I think this just became way more complicated, but I think what's interesting and kind of a thing I, I know that you wanted to talk about as well, where did all of the right-wing you know, conspiracy theorists flee once they got banned from being out in the open? They went to Telegram and, and Signal. It was a Telegram, yep. Where you they, cannot cause, see- Because too known for privacy. Yeah, and that's you cannot you cannot see where they are what they're saying anymore. You know, some of the things yeah. that have been reported out by like the New York Times and other outlets, it's just like downright scary um, that this stuff is not is not being you know seen and monitored. Well, I think I think it comes. It also comes down to not so much on some some to some level on Twitter, but when it's out there in the public and everyone can see it, if you're if you're in a group that over in a belief system that you know you can see everyone else saying the same thing you feel more emboldened to be bigger and be larger and and you you're especially on facebook when the algorithm is feeding you things they're feeding you things that um resonate with you because that's how they keep you engaged that's how they get your clicks that's how they get your time and that's how they can send sell you more ads right because you're more in the platform more so if you're um, only being reinforced by what is being delivered to you and your whole view of the world that you think everyone else is agreeing with you um, publicly in a public forum, you're more emboldened to believe the things that they're telling you. And you know what we've seen is a lot of the conspiracy theories, the QAnon, you know, what someone reported 73% of, of um, false or conspiracy theories decreased since trump was taken off twitter so like if you don't have that um ecosystem to you know to keep feeding the your your desire for that it it makes it less likely you're going to do something over the top like storm the capital but if you're in a private setting where you've got the really hardcore you know, views and beliefs without other people influencing you we don't even know what's going on anymore so you know does that then become a bigger problem where you've got private messages or private groups of hundreds of thousands of people in, you know, encrypted uh, messaging on a you know, private servers where the whole point of Telegram and Signal is that they're not going to be reading your messages. They're not going to be monitoring it because it is private and that's why they exist. You know, then what happens? Uh, and I don't know. You know, part of the reason why some governments have mandated backdoor access is to these to these platforms specifically yeah. for this um it's a it's a very strange it's time really it's a really it really is it really is and i i don't be, I, I believe that the president should be able to voice their opinions but i don't 
and this is this is the whole point of the first amendment is he can have those opinions and i can have different opinions and we can both be allowed to have them but where i think it's dangerous is if you're trying to undermine the democratic system at least trying to undermine the election then you shouldn't be able to do it at such a vast scale because you know what 15 years ago there's no way i think this is this is kind of it kind of changes the 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 direction slightly but if you were on the news or you wanted to take a print ad out or you wanted to do any kind of traditional media to broadcast a message if you want to run an ad if you want to put an ad anywhere you have to go through um your layers of um verification that what you're saying is true and on the on twitter and facebook even running digital ads now you don't really have to do that you don't have to say the claims i'm making are true here's the substantiation to back it up here are all the facts that prove that what i'm saying is right like we were trying to get ads out for you know tech companies for them to claim a processor is faster you gotta you gotta bring substantiation otherwise they'll be like no i'm not running that i'm taking the liability that what i'm showing on cbs or espn is you know is fake because if you get one complaint ad gets pulled here you can say whatever the hell you want and there's no fact checking and i think that's where you've got you know issues that no one's fact checking anything anymore on those platforms yeah uh yes well, yeah, yes. There's not much more to say other than <laughs> no, not really. Other than this, uh, this hole just keeps getting deeper. Um, and I, you know, I honestly think that uh, the solution cannot be something that these companies come up with. You know, you have to regulate um, at a governmental level, intergovernmental level. Um, yeah. Just you know, some you know, create some guardrails for uh, what can happen if you're treating these. Um, these platforms as social utility, like as, as utilities, essentially the way you do with telephones, yeah. there's got to be some, some amount of regulation Any any place where there's, you know, 2 billion people congregated, you know, and there's zero government oversight creates a yeah. potential for, you know, the things that happen with the capital, by the way, you know, it's only, it's only that it's happening in the U S that people are paying attention to it. Um, yeah. People were, you know, people in, in India were lynching um, innocent, innocent, victims yeah. essentially because of falsehoods spread on um whatsapp and uh and, and facebook lynching yeah i mean in brazil bolsonaro's you know touting false covid um conspiracy theories um the president of the philippines is actively going after gang members and getting people to go and kill people on on these platforms as well it's only because it happened in the u.s where the companies are based is that they're actually doing something about it Although Nick Clegg tried, tried, did try and play it off that it's not just here that they're focusing. It is everywhere, but not as much as it is here. Um, so, you know, I'm glad Nick Clegg is in charge of the global uh, policy policy for, for this. But he did say something, and I missed the beginning of this interview, but he did say that they are building a committee which is going to be, you know, spanning um, private companies and governments to basically have a committee that says yes or no to banning certain people from um, from platforms. And then those rulings will be binding. So it sounds like there was something in motion because they know there's, there was the backlash that they can't just say, I'm going to ban you um, uh, for that. And this, it is very murky waters. 
I hope it goes uh, further than their, um, the, 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 than their crypto initiative, uh, Libra. But anyway, on to the next topic. <laughs> yeah. On to the next topic. Something, something more, less marketing adjacent and more marketing priorities. Um, you know, as we're setting priorities um, and KPIs, um, something that I wanted to talk on, I, I saw a video from Simon Sinek and, there's, and, and separately, you also had a similar topic you wanted to cover. Um, but it's, it's the idea around KPIs um, as marketers. Mm -hmm. And so I watched this video from Simon Sinek. I'll try and link it on our Instagram and our website. Um, but it, essentially his video was around KPIs and sitting KPIs and um, how his video was around how you, um, how you perform as a team to reach those KPIs. And his, his point of view was a team can be really happy and working really well together and producing good work, but not hitting a KPI number, um, you know, set in stone. And, but they're, they're, they're a really good team and they work really well together where, and you know, they don't get it and they don't get that bonus. So, you know, they, they don't get that. Another team can be haphazardly working together, um, can be performing really poorly as a team, but getting to the end goal and they get their bonus and everyone hates working on that team. And the only reason they're on that team is because they're going to get that bonus. So it's the idea around setting KPIs and then having people's um, uh, monetary success lie against hitting those KPIs. But for me, my, so my takeaway from that was more around the idea of KPIs and how we focus on the smaller uh, micro goals um, as the be all and end all of campaigns and less around KPIs or, you know, the goals being seen in the wider picture of the, the company's success. So like, you know, you run a campaign on social and the goal is to hit um, a sub $40 cost per acquisition for your streaming service, for example. And all of your all of your work goes into acquiring as many people as you can under forty dollars, and that's all you care about week in week out, you know, quarter in quarter out. That is what you care about. And if people's at you know, on brands and at agencies, if their livelihoods, if their salaries, if their promotions, if their performance reviews are all tied to this KPI, that's all they're going to care about. And they're not going to care about anything else because they're not incentivized to do that. So it, it feels like, as especially in your, if you're in performance marketing, there's so much pressure for everyone to hit very micro level KPIs that they forget about the bigger picture. And I don't think a lot of the leaders who manage those teams think about the bigger picture because their goals is to manage the teams to hit their KPIs. And it's just around we need to do a better job of being more forgiving on not hitting specific micro KPIs so that we're able to say, we didn't hit it this month. We didn't hit it this quarter, but what we did achieve was, was this in for the goal of the, of the company and how we've changed the company to be better at doing something else and, and retaining teams to not just hit on specific CPAs, cost per acquisitions, or specific click-through rates, or run an entire pitch to hit a, you know, increase in percentage in in traffic, for example. Like, 
you know, if you're running a, if you're running your entire campaign on driving more traffic, um, and you're hoping that you've, you're going to be able to convert traffic once it gets to the site, seems like a really short termist, um, view, but if your goal, your salary is based on hitting this goal, then that's all you're going to care about. Yeah, it's um, in in watching his video too. You know the the kind of metaphor he he made Simon Sinek. Going back to that just quickly, is he said, yeah. you know, um, you, uh, he said that you know companies companies are in the business of of changing, not in the business of making money. Right. Money he says you know fuel money is fuel, and, and that's the metaphor he made is that cars aren't in the business of burning fuel. Cars are in the business of getting to some getting you somewhere, and you know they need fuel to do that. And, same with companies, you know, money yeah. is the fuel to get you somewhere. Um, and kind of, so going back to what you were talking about, how the goals are set, even at the micro level, right? You know, they're set by the client, they are briefed into the, to the agency, or even if it's an, an internal client kind of own performance marketing department, it all cascades down from the goals set by the company overall. And I can't, yeah. you know, I know that I know what he's saying, but I just, I, I having worked at a lot of different companies, you, you as well, obviously, you know that more often than not, the goals set for the company at the top level are based on revenue. And then they start wedging in, um, you know, like, okay, how do we get, how, how do we get there? You know, if we need to make a hundred million dollars in revenue this year, what are the things that we have to do to get there? And it starts cascading down to, you know, the $40 CPA for, for acquisitions. Very few companies start out with who do we want to be, um, and yep. and then what kind of things do we need to get there, including how much money do we need, right? Like, I think that uh, small companies, startups, they start with that because uh, they're born out of an idea, and that drives you. You know, hey, I need you know I need to go and raise X amount of money in order to to realize this idea. But then at some point, there is a flip. Where it's like, okay, then now because I've I've taken enough money from outside investors, all they're interested in is making a return. It's making money. Right. So then money becomes the priority and it starts guiding your decision. I think the way you set KPIs all the way down the organization level is very different if your ultimate goal is to hit a revenue number versus if your ultimate goal is to innovate in a specific area, you know, become a better creative agency, become a better hardware manufacturer, become you know something something that is an idea rather than a number. Um, so it is for us. It is for it is frustrating because all of all of this leads to short termism and you know get there at all costs. And even at you know using your example of you know CPA, if you're fishing in a in a pool for in the same pool which keeps generating that sort of thing, you're going to deplete it. You're not going to spend any time thinking about what other opportunities there are at some point you're going to run out of that runway and um you're going to be a company that's not performing anymore because you haven't yeah. your focus has been uh on on the short term not on the long term yeah i mean, I, I totally get what you're saying like and his his view is a very like idealist you know if you it's easy to not focus on making money when you have a lot of money and so you know to become a better company and not having to worry about where you're going to get you know the next paycheck for all of your employees where you're going to get the rent you know payments in like you know normal people stuff 
um, it's it's a very if it's a very it's a very different approach. But as soon as like you said, you get investors in, you have shareholders. Suddenly, it's all around and you know, the stock market and analysts are now looking at your company and saying, you know, how they're going to do, what's their revenue. It's easier to track revenue as a goal as a KPI as success than it is to say they disrupted or they changed this or they made this industry better because that's more intangible. Although every, although, although every, everyone wants that, everyone celebrates the disruptors. Yeah. No one just, no one wants to take the risk and say like, okay, well, we're behind your goal no. of disrupting X, Y, and Z, especially with a mature company. So um, yeah, it's, it's I, I think it's a, it's a paradox, of course. Uh, and then on my side, yeah. you know, going, going to the KPIs, I was, uh, I listened to the free economics podcast uh, where they talk about the effectiveness of advertising. I'm sure some of our listeners have listened to it as well. It was just a very interesting podcast taking, uh, you know, taking completely a complete like economic view, econometric view of the effectiveness of advertising. Long story short, those guys didn't find advertising to be uh, effective um, in a measurable way. They didn't, they didn't argue that it wasn't effective, but they argued that the way that we, uh, the way that we justify it isn't backed up uh, by scientific rigor. Uh, it all falls apart um, if you start poking um, a little bit too much. Um, and, and what they keep coming back to as a, as a theme is, it's a sort of a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Successful companies advertise a lot, therefore I need to advertise to be a successful company. Um, yeah. Ford and um, others have, have been in the business for 125 years um, and they've been major advertisers. Therefore that's, you know, that's the proof. That's all the proof that I need. And it doesn't hold up to, it doesn't hold up to um, a lot of rigor when they start looking at it from an economic standpoint. Um, I think that's a topic we yeah. can discuss more more with with a guest, but something to just kind of ponder: how much rigor have um, we really put into any of our campaigns as marketers, whether it's acquisition marketing or brand marketing? When we come back and we say um, to our superiors or to our clients, "We delivered X, Y, and Z." Um, are you confident that you actually delivered this? Was this uh, was this delivery going to happen anyway without those uh, dollars being spent? Did we do everything we could possibly do to design the campaign in a way that was going to deliver these results? I think those questions get asked, you know, fairly rarely and even even more so now because the speed at which we're doing things and we've been conditioned by Facebook and Google coming back to those super platforms uh, to execute. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's, it's become part of like the expense line items. Like, well, of course you have to be on Google. Well, of course you have to be on Facebook. Um, the, the note I'll finish on is something that they brought up from about 20 years ago. They said that when the first banner ads started showing up on the internet, it was such a novel thing uh, that for several years, the click-through rates were 5%, 10%, even 20%. Wow. But as people <laughs> got used to seeing them, they started ignoring them. And so the click-through rates have dropped to, you know, functionally nothing at this point. Um, And the more that we see of the same, uh, the more we're going going to ignore it. You know, pre-roll ads used to be something that we noticed. Now we just want to skip them. Instagram ads um, are slowly going into the same direction, right? You just kind of scroll through them. So again, back to the question of innovation, like what is, you know, what are we trying to do? You know, are we trying to just, 
uh, fish in that same pond until we we depleted completely. That's what's that's what's happening. Um, you know, and I think I think advertising, performance advertising, has been living in a myth that it is delivering, you know, unique results fully attributed to it, when really it hasn't thought much about its own contribution to the performance that it purports to drive. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, I think that's the, that's the thing that every marketer from a, from a client side, brand side is trying to get their agencies to, to figure out is how does brand impact performance it has performance advertising impact brands. What's the relationship to between the two? How do you measure the impact of your TV advertising on your, you know, your, your search and your click through rates on social? Um, and how do you, how are you able to, attribute to to those to figure out what is the best you know channel mix what is the best media mix how do you where do you put your budgets what do you need to do in order to maximize the efficiency of your you know every hundred dollars you spend where should you spend it to make the most you know reach and the most conversion or should you even spend it or should you even spend it Which... i mean what what's been really interesting is watching how the new sort of d2c brands have grown because their first dollar spent is always in you know the performance channel almost always it's instagram and facebook and search because yeah. they are the the most targeted but also they're the ones who are able you know they're all, they're the ones who you know you you start there to get your your money in but then when you, you know, like you were saying, you run advertising because other people run advertising to show you're a legit company, you get a big billboard. You get a big billboard in San Francisco, in New York, Times Square to say, I have enough money to buy a bill to, to buy a billboard. I have enough money to buy a TV ad. So, you know, sometimes it's just ego. You just want to do, you just want to show that you can do it. Well, I think that's a topic we can re continue to revisit. Um, at this point, we're going to wrap up. Um, Alex, thanks for yeah. the good good conversation, and we'll see we'll see each other next week. Next week. All right. Bye.